Enough JFK. Um, we've got with us today for episode 36, uh, Jared Hall. Uh, delighted that he could join us. I'm a huge fan of his, and he knows this already because I've said this to him. If you're not following me on social media already, uh, we'll obviously put links to his social media channel, particularly his Instagram, his Facebook, because um, just puts out some incredible content, and it's his content and, and uh, my consumption of it over over recent months and, and over the recent last year that's sort of made us want to invite him on and talk about the, the, the topic of discussion today, which is all about the, the taking of a good history and the way we communicate with our patients. And, and we've touched on this previous episodes when we, when we did our episode on pain science and, and things like that, but we just really wanted to get stuck into it with, with Jared because I just love the stuff he puts out there. So uh, I'm not sure what direction this conversation is going to take. If you've got any questions uh, and you're watching Fire Away, the few notes I've got in front of me, the kind of stuff we want to touch on is what, what Jared's... Um, the sort of yeah, things he asks or specific things he doesn't ask, the language he uses or doesn't use, uh, you know, we'll touch on the nocebo effect. Um, we'll talk about how important it is to listen and all these kind of things. So I want to kick off, Jared, by obviously saying thank you so much for your time and then kicking straight into, uh, with regard to a, to a good history taking, which we all know is where a good consultation begins. What, what does a typical history taking for you look like? Well, I mean, first I'll say thank you guys for having me on here. It, it's an honor. I mean, obviously, I've been following you ever since I believe I heard you on the Physio Matters podcast maybe a couple of years ago, and uh, just kind of just uh, just blew my mind with some some different things because I was I was kind of early on out of school at that point, and I was still very very biomechanically minded around the foot and ankle and measuring everybody's uh, subtalar joint to get them in subtalar neutral doing press fit molds in the clinic and that sort of thing, you know, just, and then you rocked my world with that. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's cool to get to come on here. Um, you know, as far as with the history taking in, in my personal opinion, I think that the, the real true history starts with all the intake paperwork that you get from a patient. So a lot of people have, patients do just a, a boatload of intake paperwork and then they never even look at it. They just put it in the file, you know, file it away in the computer. But if you're asking the right questions, if you're doing the right questionnaires, if you have a body chart, if you, if you ask things that, that kind of grasp at what the patient thinks and feels about their condition and what history they've been through, or what treatment they've had for it before, you're going to go in already knowing a little bit more about the patient and not having to spend a lot of time asking yes, no, basic questions and actually get to hear their story, get to know, know them a little bit better. So I think a body chart can tell you an immense amount of information. And if you're dealing with a musculoskeletal problem, those focused uh, outcome measures, maybe like the Orbro or Rebro musculoskeletal questionnaire, or the pain catastrophizing scale, Tampa scale of kinesophobia, different things like that, that, that get an idea about how the patient thinks about their injury, you know, if it is a foot and ankle injury, if, if you are a, a podiatrist or if it's somewhere else, if you're another uh, healthcare provider, um, will help you determine maybe I should explore a little bit more into the psychosocial aspects of this person's pain presentation, or maybe this truly is a, a nociceptive driven acute tissue injury, you know, straight away from the, from the paperwork. But the way that I always start my history taking is by trying to build a relationship with the patient. First and foremost, I walk out to the exam room. I grab them personally. I introduce myself. I shake their hand. I ask how the day is going. I ask what they did this past weekend. I, you know, 
ask a bunch of personal questions just to get to know them. So I'm not hitting them with the whole medical jargon right off the bat. And then as we sit down, I just say, Hey, why don't, why don't you start by just telling me your story? Tell me why you're here and what's been giving you an issue. I don't say, so I, I, I see that you're here for your ankle or I see that you're here for your big toe. I just tell me your story. Tell me what's going on because it, there might be a lot more complexity to their history and, and what's bringing them in than what they wrote down on the paperwork or, or what somebody else referred them to you saying, like if a friend or a family member said, Oh, you know, my, uh, my mom has X, Y, and Z going on. Will you treat her for it? Why don't you figure out what the patient thinks about what they have going on? Yeah. And then, and I guess, you know, moving on from there, I, we, we chatted about this earlier before we went live, just the, the mind blowing data that's coming on on that coming out on the average time that medical providers talk to a patient before they interrupt them or before they divert the conversation anywhere 17, 20, 22 seconds. Uh, So I really have been challenging myself lately to bite my tongue and just let the person talk for as long as they want to without, you know, talking about their great uncle's cousin's dog or whatever it is. Uh, And, and, I have a I have a clock over the patient's head behind them on the wall, and they they don't necessarily know that, but I'll I'll glance up at the clock every now and then just to make sure I've I've given them a minute, two minutes, three minutes before I interrupt them. Let them kind of get everything off of their chest. But it is frustrating, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> trying to, to hear about the dog and the. the <laughs> but I but I never What's forget. That? But I never forget one of my clinical tutors when I was a student, you know, and I think it's quite a common saying, listen to your patient because they will tell you the diagnosis. Um, yeah. 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 Often, oftentimes they do. Um, I, I certainly recall a paper which said that, that the average patient will bring in uh, it was something like 2.4 problems, you know, and, and you know what it's like when they're, they're, they're worried. They, they may have been thinking you may have seen 12 people that day and they're just two o'clock patient, but to them, they may have been thinking about this for three days, four days. And I've often found that when they come into the room, you just got to let them get, they, 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 they've planned what to say. They have a little script. They've decided what they think the most important things are that we need to know. So if we interrupt them, um, we're, we're far more likely to, to, to lose, lose finding out what those things are. And um, I totally agree. Your, your concern is always if you're running a bit late and they're, talking and they feel like they're going off on a tangent it's like oh, they're just, I, I'm going to have to bring them back on track here because they're going to go on forever but in your experience how long do people go on for uninterrupted I think it's only a couple of minutes uh, the research suggests isn't it it, it really is I mean I, I have had I can count on one hand the amount of patients that I've had in the last few years that started talking and then just didn't stop talking for you know 10 plus minutes it's usually two <laughs> or three it's usually two or three minutes and I've, um, I've noticed that actually some people feel shocked because they come in and they sit down and they tell their story and then they kind of just go quiet and they look at you and I'm just still waiting. I'm just staring at them and they go, you know, I, I, I guess that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's what's going on. Because <laughs> yeah. they're, not, they're not used to that. They're not used to actually telling their entire story and hitting all the points and not being interrupted or redirected. Yeah, it's usually a couple of minutes, two or three minutes. So for you, your, your top tips would be to, to make sure the literature you send out beforehand, you know, when they book the appointment, they, because they've got time at home to fill that in at their leisure. They can bring it with them. Say, um, you can sort of have a glance over it in the first few minutes or, you know, while, while 
it's been scanned on the system by your admin team. And then those first few minutes, just build a rapport and just make sure you're listening. Don't dive straight in with tell me what hurts. Tell me how you hurt your ankle. Tell me how long, you know, how long your shin's been hurt. And just, just let them tell you their story. That, that's kind of the, the big tip that I get from you and from all the other people I follow on social media is that, that fair summary. Yeah, and I was even, I remember being taught in school, don't ask open-ended questions, ask yes-no questions, keep the patient on track, get the information you need, be very efficient. And now I'm, I tell my students, don't do that. Don't, don't ask yes-no <laughs> questions. Let them tell you their story. Let them kind of give you some detail that you might not otherwise get because they'll tell you how they're feeling. They'll tell you what they think is wrong. And I like to look at those questionnaires to say, well, hey, you know, Ms. Jones, I noticed that you said that you have a lot of difficulty squatting down, or I noticed that you said that you have trouble sleeping or whatever it may be. Can you tell me a little bit about why that is? And, you know, learning what we're learning about the, the complexity of pain, we have to make sure that we don't automatically equate injury with pain, right? And pain with injury. Somebody might be having pain and it's not necessarily because they have a true acute injury or, or something that is a glaringly obvious, you know, tissue disruption. And we know that sleep impacts that level of pain that they experience. And we know that stress impacts that level of pain they experience and fear and uh, other metabolic conditions, you know, diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or whatever it may be, could be having a, uh, an influence on that. And you might not get to that information or you might not have the opportunity to talk to the patient about all these other factors that could be playing a role in their plantar fasciitis, for instance, if you didn't know that they had problems sleeping or you didn't know that they were stressed or anxious or that they were worried or concerned or scared that they might not get better or whatever it may be, you know? Yeah. yeah just just on that last, that last bit there, Jared, I think it's um, – we – that, that's something that we've always glossed over, that, that we've ha, have obviously been totally unaware that the, the impact those issues on ha, have on, say, the description of the symptoms, the perception of the pain, the perception of quality of life. And obviously, it's, it's only been in recent years that that's really come to the fore. Um, so I just wonder if you comment on that. Sort of. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, w- with everything that we were talking about before we went live, I see just a ton of similarities between the podiatry profession and the physical therapy profession where we're taught to be very tissue-based, very biomechanical in nature. Everything is a joint problem or it's a connective tissue problem or it's a muscle problem, tendon problem. That That's all it can possibly be. And you fix the joint mechanics or you fix the, the, the tendon disruption and then automatically their pain goes away. But that doesn't actually reflect what the best evidence is saying about the vast majority of musculoskeletal conditions that we see the, most of those conditions, if they're not an obvious acute injury are probably going to have some form of psychosocial component to it, or maybe the bio, biological component has something to do with the, the global health of the patient rather than just the biomechanics that they're presenting with. And uh, even, even that acute injury, the degree of pain that they're experiencing isn't, necessarily reflective of the amount of tissue damage that they're experiencing, the, the central nervous system and expectations and beliefs and, and um, prior, prior experiences and all that sort of stuff factor into the degree of pain that that person will experience based on the, the condition that they're presenting to you with. And it, it might be just dramatically amplified because they're very anxious, they're very depressed, they're sleep deprived, they have, 
you know, poor metabolic health that creates an increase in systemic inflammation, which increases the amount of nociception dr driven up to the brain. And then the brain is more um, on edge because of those other psychosocial factors. And that amplifies the experience of pain or it, it creates a more aggressive experience of pain because the brain perceives there to be a greater amount of damage just or a greater amount of danger based on all those factors. Yeah. It's interesting because I'm actually dealing with a, uh, problem at the moment and someone with uh, ankle sprain or twist of the ankle, but MRI, ultrasound, x-ray, no tissue damage, nothing, no swelling, nothing, just a lot of pain. And for psychosocial reasons, some alarm bells have gone off. So yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, well, I was going to say 20 years ago, we probably would have put them in orthotics. Um, yeah, I've got to be careful who I say it is. Because <laughs> but I think this is, I think the key thing here is that for a long time as podiatrists, we've, we've been viewed as, and we've actually tried to intentionally market ourselves as the foot specialists. You know, we're the people that, that, that treat feet. You know, we're the people that fix feet. If you've got a foot problem, think about a podiatrist. And, um, and actually, the more time I spend listening to, to, to non-podiatrists, surrounding myself with smarter people than I am, the more you sort of realize that we don't treat feet, we don't fix feet, we, we treat people, you know, with foot problems. And, and um, you know, the foot is, uh, is attached to, to the human, so we don't just, shouldn't just be looking at the foot or the ankle in Craig's case. You know, we've got to be thinking about the, 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 the human. Um, you touched on pain a little bit there, and I knew we were going to obviously talk about pain because why, why wouldn't we? But um, when you sort of let the patient tell their story um, and you sort of get to the point where you go, okay, well, I really want to kind of tease out a bit more information. Now, historically, we'd sort of say, okay, tell me where it hurts, point to where it hurts. And then we go through the nature of the pain, the duration of the pain. You know, we'd ask them to say, is it, you know, and we'd sometimes even prime them. We'd say, does it feel dull or sharp? Score it out of zero to 10, where zero is pain-free and 10 is the worst pain you can imagine. And um, uh, this doesn't, just doesn't feel like the most uh, appropriate or accurate way to, to ask these questions anymore. Could you give us a bit of an insight into how you, how you sort of ask these kind of questions of the patient and the kind of answers that you'd expect? I mean, the longer I practice, the more I'm trying to get away from the the, the NPRS. I, I don't really, I mean, I care, but I don't really care on the zero to 10 scale because patients don't like that scale. We don't like that scale. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Somebody says they have a 10 and you have to take their, what they say at, at face value. We can't feel what they are feeling and we cannot objectively say, no, that's a seven or no, that's a 10. And so I don't really like that whole scale. I do like to say, you know, where does it hurt? Um, and what does it feel like to you? I don't want to lead them down a pathway of saying, well, is it sharp? Or does it feel like stabbing? Or does it feel like tearing? Or does it feel like burning? I want to hear what they have to say to me before I put any words in their mouth. And if they say, I don't know, it just hurts. Then I might give them a little bit more. But at first, I would like to completely let the patient say what they think and what they feel or come up with whatever metaphor that they have for what they're experiencing. There's, uh, I don't know if you guys know who um, John Quinter is, but he's a, uh, a pain management physician in Australia. And he talks about how pain is an aporia, 
which means that we, the only way that we can describe pain is through the usage of metaphors and similes and stories. There's no way to even objectively use language surrounding pain without saying it feels like a, a knife is stabbing me or it feels like I'm being burned or it feels like X, Y, or Z. So it's really easy to implant thoughts into patients' heads about how it feels or if you say, does it feel like a stabbing pain. Well, now all of a sudden you've given somebody the mental picture of being stabbed in that area. And that in and of itself could to some degree be a little bit shocking to their system. And now they have in the back of their mind, oh yeah, you know what? I am being stabbed or something is being torn. Uh, so it's, it's a hard line to walk and I don't think that I have it perfected. I don't know that anybody has it perfected. I don't even know if I know what the hell I'm doing. I'm just trying not to, <laughs> I'm trying not to lead the patient too much myself. I'm trying not to bias them too much myself and, you know, ask them how, how they would describe it, what general vicinity it's in. Does it come from anywhere else? Does it feel like it starts in one place and goes another place? Just give me everything that you feel about this pain. And then what I like to ask is what do you feel like is causing your pain? What do you believe is going on? And a lot of times you'll hear some really crazy stuff about what the patient believes is going on because their mom or their previous medical provider or the, the surgeon last year or the chiropractor down the road or the last three physical therapists that they saw told them some ridiculous story about, you know, uh, hip internal rotation and pelvic obliquities and joints out of alignment is causing their pain. And then you have a, you just have a, a big narrative to unpack after that. Uh, so, so really getting down to the meat of what the patient believes is causing their pain and in the words that they would use to describe what they feel like is going on without, without leading them or, or putting words in their mouth. I, th I think I got way off on the tangent there. So I apologize. <laughs> Uh oh, I think Ian's frozen. Ian's frozen, yeah. Actually, <laughs> well, 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 I'm not sure what the next question you have, but go back to that ankle ankle sprain that I was talking about. And the, the, the person has a history of the sort of pain perception type issues. So, how would you approach something like that? Um, I'm just trying to think of the, the bit more specific question. I mean, pretty much all we, we're just looking at a lot of exercises for her at the end of the day. Um, you know, we can't find any tissue damage. There's no doubt it's painful, um, at least to her, and, and we're moving on from there. Sorry, you're back in. We just lost you there for a minute, Ian. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, I, I, had, a, I had a worldly of a question as well. But, yeah, <laughs> um, are you... Did you just ask another question, or can I? Yeah, just ask sorry. More, did you well, get that, Jared? Or I, I wasn't sure exactly what you were asking, so I didn't yeah. want to answer before I was clear. Yeah, just more that you, you, you've got this alleged ankle sprain, no tissue damage, no clinical signs, nothing MRI, ultrasound. Yeah, it's obviously painful. How would you go about approaching something like that therapeutically? So, I mean, the first thing that I would do is acknowledge that patient's pain and make let them know that I believe them that they do hurt. Say, you know, this is great. We've done this imaging. We haven't found any tissue issues at all. You have, all your ligaments are intact. Your joints look healthy. Your you, everything is is as it should be. But I still know that you have pain, and I know that you wouldn't be here seeking my care if you didn't have something that you that you needed help with. 
But just because you don't have any tissue damage or don't have any direct injury doesn't mean that some sort of tissue can't be irritated or doesn't mean that your nervous, you, you don't have some sensitive nerves in that area. And if you do have sensitive nerve endings, that can definitely create the experience of pain because your brain is just always trying to protect you. And if it thinks that there's something wrong with your ankle that it needs to protect, it's going to make you have pain. So let's look at some ways that we can show your brain that your ankle doesn't need to be protected anymore. And that can be with exercise. That could be with some manual therapy. That could be with some mirror type therapy to, to use the non-involved side, graded exposure through mental practice or physical practice of going up to poking the bear, just enter into that pain a little bit and then back away and essentially show the brain that it doesn't need to be protecting that area with the experience of pain. Yeah. That's the approach we took not, not to protect it, to get it moving. Yeah. That's the, um, just want to backtrack a little bit to the question I asked about the zero to 10 scale and get your take on something. If that's okay, Jared. Um, I, I read a thread on, I'm sure it was our mutual friend, Ben Cormack's uh, Facebook. Could have been any, you know, there's so many Facebook threads you read. But I read a really interesting take on it. I think it was from Ben himself, where he said, even though we know it's not a great thing to do to ask someone, rate your pain zero to 10, we know that the evidence isn't um, necessarily supportive of that. We know that pain is complex and personal. He still asked it, and I, for, I forgive, I forgive, not that Ben's listening, but forgive me if he's putting words into his mouth, but he still asked that question because where they, where they gave that number could sometimes give, them, give, give, give an insight into how serious they wanted you to take it. So, for example, in Craig's example, when the scan's clear and you're examining on, on palpation, there's no real sort of flinching or, or, you know, on functional testing, there's no real deficit. And then you ask them, where's your pain on the zero to ten? And they say eight. I mean, to our mind, we're like, well, that, that isn't an eight. There's nothing about that. So what that possibly does is gives you an insight that you've asked this person a question in their head, their sudden thought is, I need this medical professional to know, I need them to take this seriously. It's really a three, but no one takes it three seriously. And I thought that was a really interesting sort of way of viewing the zero to 10 visual analog scale and TRS. And, and is that, do, you remember, do you recall that conversation? Yeah, yeah, I remember. I was, I was in that conversation. I don't remember if I was, I don't remember if I was commenting myself or if I was just reading along. But <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> uh, but I think that that's a really valid point because with that zero to ten scale, you get to see either how much that patient wants you to look at it or how how important they want you to see that that pain is, or how much they feel like it's impacting their life. You know, and that could look like a that could look like a lot of different things. Somebody might rate their pain higher if they view it to be more detrimental to their lifestyle or to their, to their happiness or to what they can do. Or like you said, if they, if they really want the medical provider to say, look at this, this is serious. Like this is, this is very important that you see this. I'm going to rate it that high. Even if I'm not writhing on the floor of the worst pain you could ever experience on that, you know, 10 out of 10 scale to them, it's very important. And it's, uh, we can, like I said, you, we can never say that they're not experiencing a nine out of 10 or a, a eight out of 10 or a one out of 10. We have no idea what a person is feeling because there's no objective way to measure it. We have to believe them and, and know that if they rate their pain really highly, they're, they're really asking for us to listen to them and us to care a little bit more. They, they really want us to care 
and examine them further or or help them more. Yeah. I, I, Andrea uh, has just commented on the Facebook page. Uh, quite a good comment, actually. And I totally agree with her. She said, I always ask what their expectations are from the appointment. Um, I presume she does that fairly early on. Um, and, and often you get quite a surprising answer. And I think I, we've all been guilty, certainly I have, of, of making an assumption about why this person's here. So tell me what your story is. Tell me what the problem is. And my assumption being they want this problem resolved. But actually, not always the case, is it? I mean, how, how early on in the consult, I'm guessing that is a question you, you would ask. How, how early on do you pitch that one out there? So that would, for me, that would usually probably be somewhere mid, like mid history taking or mid examination after I've got them to tell me their story. And then I usually say, you know, what, what have you done so far for this or what treatment have you had and how beneficial has that been? Who have you seen for it? And once I've got a good idea of everything that they have and haven't done, I say, I would ask that question in some, some form or fashion about what do you expect to be done for this? Or what do you expect will make this better? What do you envision me helping you with? How do you feel? What can I do for you? Is kind of like one of Louis Gifford's questions. What's wrong? What can I do to help myself? What can you do to help me type of deal? So that really gets the idea of they don't, maybe they don't necessarily care about the pain at all. They just want to get back to running and they don't necessarily hurt, care if it hurts a little bit. They just don't, they feel like they're limited in running or squatting or stairs or, you know, sleeping or playing with their kids right now. And their expectation is I want to get stronger so I can do those things. And I don't really care if it hurts. So if we automatically focus on, well, we've got to make this pain go away, then that might lead us down the wrong path of something that they're not necessarily that interested in. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that nine out of 10, if not 10 out of 10 dis disgruntled patients, uh, you know, bad experiences with clinicians has probably been where expectation hasn't been met. Uh, and that's why people are often unhappy. Uh, you can be the nicest person trying to help someone, but if, if you didn't meet what their expectation was, because you didn't know what it was, then you're mm. probably not going to get left a very good Google review. So, you, you know, from, the, from our own point of view, finding out what they want from it is good because then we can fairly early, early on say whether we think we can meet that or not. Um, and it all comes back to that that two-way, that, that bi-directional communication, I think, doesn't it? Um, we talked a bit about language uh, and you talked a bit about the questions you would ask. Um, are, are, there, are there particular, well, let's come on to terminology, words, you know, um, I've seen a couple of your infographics, which, I, which I'm, I'm a huge fan of, where you've talked about words that can, the concept of words that can harm and words that can, can heal. Um, I know it's a kind of personal thing when, you know, whether a word is fear-inducing or nocebic is not the same for everyone, but are there, are there, certain words or terms that you can think that apply to the lower limb just big no-nos to to even mention uh i mean i think anything that gives the impression of permanence so the general medical community the general patient population all of society right now still kind of on average views the human body as a mechanical device they view it like a car they view it as something that's in or out of alignment they view it as um some sort of piece of mechanical equipment in which parts wear out and they have to get replaced. So anything, any language that conveys the idea or the message of permanent damage or permanence, I try to avoid. So if something is ripped, if something is torn, if something is worn out, if something's degenerated, 
those type of things. I really try to avoid those terms because what can an, what can an orthotic do or what can an exercise do or what can an ultrasound do or whatever it may be for a torn ligament or a degenerated joint or, a, or whatever it may be. So instead I try to use words that are much more transient. So you don't have chronic pain, you have persisting pain. It's, it's persisting right now. You don't, you don't have a, a torn tissue or a ripped up tissue. You have some sort of tissue that's been overloaded or is irritable right now. And we're going to go through steps to, to get that less irritated or to get that tissue stronger or to, to increase the, the capacity of your body to do those things. So I try to flip everything that would generally be negative or permanent in a positive light or a transient light to let them know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And that, that light might be four weeks from now, or it might be four months from now, but it's something that can be worked through. Actually, interesting you just said about persisting pain versus chronic pain. I did a workshop last week at a hospital here in Melbourne, and their chronic pain clinic had just changed their name to Persistent Pain Clinic. (laughs) (laughs) They're obviously taking it on board. Yeah, I mean, that's good to hear. I I think that there's a stigma around the whole diagnosis or idea of chronic pain. Oh, you just have chronic pain. Chronic to me means it's long lasting. Yeah. It is it is there forever. It's it's just chronic, but persistent or persisting. Per, there's even been a debate on persistent versus persisting. Persistent pain makes it seem kind of negative and like it's really coming at you. It's really persistent, whereas persisting pain says, well, you have some pain that is persisting right now, but we will get past it. it, it it's going to be patient dependent. It's going to be scenario dependent. It's going to be provider dependent on how you can make that sound. Um, but I, like I said, I immediately tried to flip things into a more, more positive light that, that maybe doesn't make a person feel like, um, ah, screw it, I'm, st- I'm stuck like this. There's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, but per- perhaps one of the issues, though, is, is I, I know my, my use of the language around this has, has evolved over the last year or so as, as I've learned more about it. But I also am very cautious that the individual patient is going to go to Google. I'm not the only health professional they're going to be seeing. Um, and they're going to latch onto certain words from other people. And yes. <laughs> they've got to decide to believe me or this other person. And, and I, yeah, I think there are potential risks around that, despite, you know, hopefully things will change, but it's going to take a very, very long time for everyone to be on board with this. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not going to change nearly as fast as we want to because I want it changed yesterday, of course. But the, 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 this is definitely a question that comes up all the time I, with students I have and, you know, mentees and all this sort of stuff, people I talk to is how, you know, do you just squash this narrative, this negative narrative that a patient has that the, that the doc that they saw yesterday just told them about, or the surgeon that they saw last week just told them about, or that the, the chiropractor that they've been seeing for the last 25 years has been telling them odds are if they've spent more time with that other person, they like them better than they like you at this point. And if you start attacking what they believe to be the truth, you're going to very quickly experience the backfire effect. And you're going to very quickly see that somebody is going to 
have almost like a tribal psychology reaction to say, well, I'm in this tribe and I believe this is what's wrong with me. And this is what my previous doc said is what's wrong with me. And this is what you believe. So it's us versus them. And I'm against you. I'm not on board with anything that you're saying because you're telling me what I, what I think and believe about myself is wrong right off the bat. You know, a lot of it has to be very slow and over time. And you have to lead a patient to, make those decisions themselves rather than force feeding them information. You know, I might, I might say, let, let's use the example of it's easiest with back pain, but I'm thinking of a foot and ankle problem. Okay. They have ankle, they have a degenerative ankle, right? They have a terrible subtalar joint or they have a terrible, terrible telecoral joint. It, it needs to be replaced. And I might ask them, well, does it hurt all the time? Does it hurt every day, all day long? And they say, well, no, not really. You know, when I get up in the morning, it feels pretty good. Or, or when I walk for a little while, it feels pretty good. But if I walk too far, it, it starts to hurt. And I say, well, is your ankle degenerated and not degenerated in the morning and then degenerated in the afternoon? Is it not degenerated when you had a, a really terrible a really good night's sleep and it's degenerated when you had a terrible night's sleep? Is it not degenerated when you're when you're happy and degenerated when you're stressed out, you know, you lead them to say, you know what, if it doesn't always hurt, maybe it's not as permanent as I thought that it was. And, and maybe of my ankle or maybe altering the, the load tolerance of my ankle could really help it. And I think that you guys would know a hell of a lot more about this than me, but maybe shifting the internal joint forces to temporarily offload an overloaded tissue might be exactly what they need in the short term with some sort of foot orthosis or whatever it may be to, to prove to them that this isn't necessarily a permanent problem and you can definitely work through it. Yeah. Actually, Jared, there's a, there's a comment we made by Andrea and it's got me thinking, um, and I know this is way outside your area of expertise, but in the high-risk diabetic foot, they're at huge risk for an amputation. Now, just using the word amputation is a, is a very nocebic language and I, I know it's outside of your area it's certainly something I've never thought about until now but I just wonder if you've got any comments on that um, you know scaring these people with with you know diabetes and they're at risk for amputation that sort of goes against this whole nocebic language we're talking about within musculoskeletal areas which is yeah yeah, so this, this I've actually had this conversation with somebody before. We were talking about making lifestyle modifications. You have somebody that they really don't manage their weight well. They don't manage their blood sugar well. They're, they're having connective tissue dysfunction all over their body. They have chronic pain. Do you essentially, you know, kind of threaten them with what could happen to, to light a little fire underneath their butt? And I honestly don't know. Do you, do you say, Hey, you, you could end up with an, a foot amputation. Do you, do you want that? You know, if you don't control what's going on with your foot right now, if you don't check your foot every day for, for ulcers, or you don't make sure that you're not experiencing some sort of infection, if you don't check your blood sugar every day, if you don't change your diet, if you don't exercise, you end up with a, an amputation. I don't know if that's the best path to go down. It would be really cool to see um, if, tracking a couple of patients over a few years, if using imagery or language like that actually was helpful to them or hurtful to them in the way that they decided to continue to manage their, uh, their condition. But I, I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah, and no, if, I, I, if I did answer out, I would just be making stuff up. 
No, I think we've always, uh, for quite a while now, it's always been, especially with that population, about being more positive, focusing on what they can do versus what they shouldn't be doing, those kinds of things. But in the concept of nocebic language, I've never thought about it until now. <laughs> yeah, I must admit, I not a group of people I see anymore. But back yeah. many years ago, when I was in the NHS doing high-risk clinics, we were very much telling them about the risks of what could happen if they didn't do the right things. But in the sense that we were trying to educate them, but actually, I think Andrew's point is great. You, you, you want to keep them positive, but how do you keep them positive? But you still want to be truthful to them and tell them the genuine risks of of, of the process that they have going on. Um, that's a great question. Now, I thought of that. On a se- on a second thought, um, I'm trying to think through it, and I I don't necessarily think that that would be helpful at all to tell them well they could lose their foot because if we look at for instance the smoking industry and I don't know how it is in the UK or in Australia but we've started putting pictures of cancerous lungs on cigarette packages and and big warnings that this will cause cancer this has a high risk of causing cancer if you smoke these cigarettes it could cause bladder cancer lung cancer etc here's a picture of what you know, terribly tar-filled, diseased lungs looks like lungs look like, and this is what beautiful, healthy lungs look like. And the rates of smoking haven't even necessarily changed all that much with right. that information. So, just like uh, I, I think that that could be similar to saying, well, you know, if 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 you're a depressed person and you don't cheer up, there's an increased risk for suicide. Or if you're an obese person and you don't just eat better, there's a you know you could have a heart attack. I think that probably going in and and doing something that was meaningful for that patient, helping them find meaning in, in some way to change the habits in their life rather than uh, fear, fear tactics or scare tactics would probably be a more effective way to do that. Just based on looking at similar data from other, from other areas. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, Jared, you did a, you came over to London uh, to, to speak at a conference uh, not too long ago, and I remember seeing a couple of your slides, which were great, and they were entitled, um, Stop, Stop Telling Your Patients Everything's Wrong With Them. Um, and obviously it was, it was the, I believe it was the, was it the chiropractic conference, I think? It was, it was so it yeah. Polite, yeah, it certainly wasn't a podiatry conference, but it was amazing to me that you were sort of, as a, as a physical therapist, giving a talk at a chiropractic conference, bullet points of, of all the ways that we can inadvertently give our patients the impression that they're just a mess. They're just a mechanical, you know, um, pile of, pile of wreck. And almost every single one of those points could be applied to podiatry as well. And I think because we've been so mechanically minded in, and, and, and anatomically minded and stru- structural in our, in the way we're taught, the way we approach things, particularly in our musculoskeletal we, we have, as we've already said, kind of ignored the person, ignored the complexity of pain, ignored the whole point that pain is an, an output of the brain, not an input. And um, half the things that I think back to my, my junior self 15 years ago saying to, to, to patients really make me cringe now when we're talking of so much about alignment. And, and like you say, as a new grad, you're, you're worried about the position of the rear foot, you're worried about um, you know someone's dynamics. And we now know that I mean, 50% of the, the runners that come in to see me, the first thing they say is, oh, I think I'm a pronator. Uh, you know, we, 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 we've talked about that before. Um, can you just, for, for the people that aren't aware of those slides, and I'll, I'll link to them because I think they're great, yeah, just give us a bit of a gist of, of, of the topic of that talk and, and, and what, how you think that kind of applies to podiatry because 
I do think we're probably guilty of, of accidentally telling people they're leaving with leaving our clinic rooms with the the thought process that that they're they're not in a good position. Yeah. So uh, that that specific talk that you, you saw the slides for from was a talk on learned helplessness, and I don't know if you guys are very familiar with the idea of learned helplessness, but it's essentially a, a psychological theory or principle that says that once a human being or, or animal learns to be helpless, they lose an internal locus of control, they develop an external locus of control, and they feel that the world is happening to them, and they can't make any effect on the surrounding world around them or any effect on their health or their, their likelihood of getting better because they don't have a chance. They don't have hope. They don't feel like they have any control. So I was, I was speaking about learned helplessness and how we can go about maybe helping to prevent patients from falling, people in general from falling into a, a mindset or a feeling of learned helplessness by changing the way that we give our, our history of, of findings to a patient. So instead of saying, well, you have a very weak posterior tibial tendon and you have pronated feet and you have a everted locked calcaneus or whatever it may be. And all the, all the things that I, I learned to tell people in physio school and instead saying, well, you know, you're young and you're healthy. So you have a high chance of getting better. You, you have a system that heals very well, or you actually have a lot of good strength and good range of motion that we can work with. You're able to get out and walk and exercise and do this and do that. You have a good family support system. You have uh, the ability to go to the gym. You have that accessible to you. You have all of these positive factors going for you that taking care of this little issue is not going to be a big deal versus you're weak, you're out of alignment, you're locked in pronation, you have a huge Q angle, you have a rotated pelvis. We need to fix all this terrible stuff with you before you ever even have a chance of getting better. Kind of takes the locus of control away from, or the self-efficacy away from the patient. And if they feel like they have to be fixed a million different ways to someday, then all of a sudden, their locus of control is external and they don't feel like they have any, any power to make change in their life. They're completely reliant upon other people and they feel somewhat helpless. I can remember a patient, Jared, many, many years ago that I had a very, very good relationship with, you know, quite friendly. And I actually said to them, if you're a horse, I'd take you out and shoot you. <laughs> but, but that, that picture you painted of, uh, but you're looking back now just how no seabic is that kind of you know, I'm sure we've all felt that about patients but with horses that's what they do to them when they have all those, those problems it's a, it's a lamb horse they've hurt, their, they've hurt their foot they can never race again they're not worth it yeah. just shoot them because it, it, it's, more, it's easier to get rid of them than it is to try to fix them yeah <laughs> um, I've got to ask a question, actually, that's just come to mind. And the reason it's come to mind is that Neil, uh, the kettlebell physio, is watching. And uh, uh, I remember reading one of his posts. He's another person I follow and I enjoy his posts immensely. I remember reading one of his posts about how uh, he, 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 I believe I'm right in saying, has a, has a bit of a beef with calling uh, people patients. It's like an over-medicalization. I mean, and the first thing that comes to mind really is just, is there nothing that you physical therapists won't argue about terminology? <laughs> I, I don't think there is. Um, but, you know, uh, I, read, I read something he wrote on that and, and, and it actually was quite compelling. And I thought to myself, that's, that's the word I use the most. 
I sometimes use athletes if I'm seeing someone particularly sporty or if they are an athlete, but patience is probably my go-to. We, if I watch this back, I've probably said it four or five times in this, in this episode. Um, I don't like the word clients. I never have. It feels seedy to me. It feels, um, it feels like back alley, sort of red light district kind of stuff. And I just wondered where your, where your thought process, well, what side of the fence you landed on the client, patient, or something else kind of terminology? So uh, that's interesting you bring that up. That's something I've been thinking about a little bit lately and, and trying to challenge myself to use the term patient less. I've definitely used it already several times on this interview of this podcast. But I, I think if you'll notice, if we go back and watch it, I will say patient or, you know, just people, people in pain, general society, whoever it is. Uh, I don't like client either because client makes me feel like a, a sneaky businessman. I'm just trying to take, I'm trying to take advantage of my clients and get money out of my clients. I don't, I don't like that very much either, but I, I think that automatically putting the label of patient on people can, can be a slippery slope as well. So it, it might just be easiest to say just people, just human beings. I'm, I'm seeing a person that has foot pain. I'm seeing a person that has Achilles tendinopathy. They're, they're a human being. They're they're an individual. When you when you put the label of patient on them, all of a sudden, it's really easy to develop the paternalistic traditional model of you're treating down at that patient rather than your two human beings coming together to work on helping somebody get over an injury or out of a, a pathological condition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing I really want I, I definitely wanted to, to touch on during this episode because I think it, I. I I think it's one of your brilliant strengths is just how good you seem to be at getting incredibly complex things such as pain to, to use the you know, one big example and putting it in, breaking it down into sort of simple to use language. You did a recent video on your Facebook page about um, how you explain pain and nociception to, to the lay person. Um, someone's just popped up a question or it's gone out of my screen now saying, you know, is there any resources that we can we can, can sort of access for these things? And I would answer to that, you know, yes, there are your page and Ben Cormack's page and, you know, the, the sort of the, all the stuff that's coming from Lauren Mosley. But, I mean, it's clear to me you place an incredible emphasis on education in your in your interactions with your patients and you're clearly very good at it. Is that a skill that you've always had? Is it something that you work hard on? Is it developed? For people watching myself included that think you know we're a work in progress here we'd like to be better at this any any life hacks any top tips uh, to, to, to be better at it just level level down your intelligence a little bit the reason I can explain things simply is because I'm dumb I don't <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got I've got to make it make sense to myself so it, it's just way easier to make it sound simple than the actual true complexity it is uh, but I mean Looking back on my evolution, uh, coming out of school and, you know, year by year, getting to where I'm at right now, I have been absolutely miserable at trying to explain things to patients. And I think the only reason that I've come up with some analogies or some metaphors or, or whatever it is, is because I sucked at it so bad that I challenged myself to become better and practice and practice and practice and write it out, write it down, sit down and type it out on a keyboard in front of me. I've written articles and I've written infographics on this stuff. Um, and that has forced me to kind of 
choose my words a little bit more carefully and, and simplify it as much as possible so it, it didn't seem so ridiculous. But even still today, I mess up on a daily basis. I think I, I say nocebo type terms that I, or nocebo inducing terms that I probably shouldn't say on a regular basis. It's just, um, it's like any other skill. You have to practice it and practice it and practice it to get any better at it. There, there's probably some people that are just naturally better at it than others, just like anything. Somebody's naturally good at basketball or somebody's naturally good at golf. I'm neither of those things. Um, I'm not, na- I'm not naturally good at explaining this stuff either, but I have, um, really challenged myself to practice it quite a lot and, you know, getting on conversations like this and talking about it continually makes me see holes in my own thinking and areas that I need to improve upon and going back and listening to myself on podcasts. And I say, golly, I'm an idiot. I hope nobody else heard all that crap I was saying. Yeah. Um, I know Joe, I, uh, Oh, sorry. Sorry, Craig, go on. Yes, because I, I do quite a lot of like one-day workshops, largely mechanical-based, but I, I, throughout the workshops, I often allude to all the stuff. You know, and I, you know, I might be talking about something. Like, and then, but it's always interesting. People say to me, oh, can you tell us more about that? And I said, well, no. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, I know enough to know what I should be doing. I know enough to explain to people to, to other clinicians, there's a lot happening in this area and you really need to be on top of it, but I don't know enough to teach it and that's the problem. So um, like the question earlier from Jay, Jamie, I think, Jane, Jane, um, you know, where, where do you go to get these resources? And what I've actually been doing is referring them back to the earlier podcast we did with Mike Stewart. Well, there's a good place to start. Um, but I, I, I just wonder if you don't want to get a plug-in for this while you've got the chance. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. As oh a, my gosh, you guys. As a, as a, as a resource that... You're so um, humble, Jared. Well, you're not going to mention this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't planning on it, but yeah, I, yeah. Uh, my, my, myself and, and a colleague of mine, Jim Hefner, who is a, who's a physio in Boulder, Colorado, came together to work on a little project to, to really try our best at simplifying um, some metaphors and some stories to help better understand uh, the experience of pain. And, you know, it's still a work in progress. And I think we have a little bit of maybe over 50, 50 little stories, narrative stories or, or metaphors to, to help explain the experience of pain and explain what graded exposure is and explain different tissue pathologies and that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're proud of it, but we definitely see some places where we could refine it as well. Yeah, I've, I've pointed a couple of people toward that, and we yeah, patients as well, and and also Ben Cormack's uh, flashcards, uh, Greg Layman's, Greg Layman's sort of very generous uh, and completely free uh, workbook, which I'm sure you're familiar with as well. So there's an awful lot of stuff out there for clinicians and patients alike. And oh. this is Actually, speaking 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 of Ben, he's just joined in. Oh, has he? Yeah, Benny, Benny Boo. While he's uh, while he's listening, we'll have to we have to sort of put, try and put him under pressure and ask him if he wants to come on and do an episode with us as well. Because <laughs> uh, because the reason being, the reason we had Mike Stewart on and we wanted you on and, and I want to get uh, we've had uh, you know Meekins on who touches on this as well is is like I say we're, we're aware that within podiatry this has been ignored and we know it's not sexy. We know when we look at the stats, the episodes we've done on pain science and history taking communication probably aren't going to get the hits that the, 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 
the ones talking about pathology did. Um, but but we need to be better at this stuff. And I'm like you. I, I'm. This is a huge learning curve for me. I, I I've been just tried to completely surround myself with it for, for several years now. My only goal is is to try and be a bit less shit at it than I was the day before. <laughs> that's my only. And if I if I manage to achieve that every day, then then at some point I maybe I'll be I'll be okay. Um, but as podiatrists, we just want to raise raise the profile of of this kind of stuff. I mean, history taking, communication is just. Without that, we we really the pathology is sort of irrelevant to me, um, you know. But we've been so focused on pathology our entire sort of careers, our entire teaching, and I think we just need to, to shift that balance slightly. So, um, is there anything else? Uh, I know you do an awful lot of teaching, uh, Jared. This is a question I've, I've begun asking people at the end of these episodes. Now it's come to my sort of tradition. You do an awful lot of teaching. You to, to both your your pe- your patients slash people in your in your clinics to other professions of, of varying backgrounds uh, and you know I know you've talked about this stuff an awful lot uh, over, over the months and the years is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like the listening audience to you know a, a sort of take home or, or something that you sort of think you know what one final thing I just want to make sure everyone's everyone's sort of uh, you know it's registered with everyone is there anything we haven't covered that you think is, is important to just put out there before we wrap things up I mean I think if I had to condense the most important bullet point down, it would be that to remember that at the end of the day, those patients slash clients slash people that you're dealing with are human beings just like you who are undergoing stressful situations just like you who are having family issues just like you who are having beliefs and expectations that, that, you know, maybe you could have a positive impact on. So when you're when you're interacting with people, try as hard as you can to be somewhat positive, to think about what you're saying before you say it. Uh, Understand that it's easier to harm somebody with your language than it is to help somebody with your language. You know, to to steal a title from Ben Darlow, it's, it's easier, easy to harm, hard to heal, right? The, the effects of what we say to people can be, profound. So making sure that we are being helpful and positive in in providing some sort of hope to people rather than being very paternalistic and talking down to people and and being negative and and not being hopeful or providing some sort of of positivity to look forward to is it can really dramatically change whether or not a patient gets better or how fast they get better or what they believe about their ability to get better because beliefs are probably the most powerful, one of the most powerful predictor of somebody's ability to get better from a musculoskeletal injury. And that continues to show itself in, in the literature just time and time again. I, I have a slide, I think, that has like 15 different articles that I've cited to show that fear avoidance beliefs and, and maladaptive beliefs time and time and time and time again lead to greater levels of pain, greater levels of disability and uh, increased medical costs, all this sort of stuff that um, we directly have the ability to impact. And it doesn't take very much just to change the way that you explain something or, or change your wording just a little bit to hopefully prevent pretty significant over medicalization or over treatment or, or disability in the future. Sure. Yeah. 
I think the great thing about this as well is that there's just so much opportunity to practice it. So whoever's listening, you this kind of it, it excites them, it ignites a fire within them. You've got a list of 15 clients, patients, people tomorrow. You've got 15 opportunities to practice this. If we, you know, our episode we did with Seth O'Neill on Achilles tendinopathy, great episode. But you have to wait till the next person in your clinic presents with Achilles tendinopathy to practice what you what you've heard, what you've learned. This stuff, you just get so much opportunity to to play with it, to practice with it, to to to, to evolve as a you know as an individual yourself. And I think um, that's that's I don't know how that doesn't excite people the way that excites me. Uh, I think that's probably more of a narrative on me than it is on anything else. But. Um, <laughs> uh, Craig, anything else you wanted to say? No, I think, I think the, the, the hour's gone. It's gone quickly. It's been helpful. So, um, again, as per normal, quite a few people have just joined in. Hi, Debbie. Um, and if you come back in 10 minutes, Facebook, render it, and it'll be available from the beginning. It'll be up on YouTube in a few hours. And obviously, as a podcast now, that'll be there later today, my time. So, so thanks so much, Jared. It's been really good. Um, thanks, thank you, guys. Really uh, appreciate it. And thanks, Ian, and we'll see everyone next week.